Welcome to Success Stories, the podcast where outstanding women share their journey to leadership, the personal habits that have helped them succeed, and the projects they're passionate about. Join me, your host, Catherine Robson, as we redefine what success looks like. Samantha Cromfort began her career as an academic with an honours degree in science and a PhD in sociology. She always loved the rigour and uncompromising integrity that academic thinking brought to complex problems. However, from the outset, Samantha was impatient and frustrated by the tension between the time needed for academically rigorous research versus the real-world desire for rapid evidence-based outcomes. She realised that there was a real gap in the market, and in response, she founded Rapid Context, a unique research consultancy helping large organisations like the Australian Defence Force and the Australian Football League to understand and action change in highly sensitive areas within their organisation. Samantha has combined her business with a passion for harnessing the power of flexible work and building a strong team of talented academics and researchers. She has created a workplace that puts into action many of the practices she recommends for her clients, including unlimited paid leave and working spaces which can accommodate children of any age. The level of commitment and engagement that this has developed in her team has resulted in not only a highly profitable business, but a growth trajectory that many would envy, being inundated with both client requests for work and talented consultants who want to join her. Samantha, hi. Welcome to Melbourne. Um, You're a Melbourne person originally. Tell us a bit about your background and how you came to find yourself where you are now. Okay, so I was born, um, my parents had a a milk bar in East Keela. So there, in fact, most of my childhood was helping out, serving in milk bars and fish and chip shops. (laughs) So um, it seems a long way from that. Uh, now, but yeah, certainly a, a an upbringing that um, where small business was the the focal point so. and hard work, presumably. Yeah, small really. Business people in that sort of environment work hard. Yeah, seven day a week businesses. So I absolutely swore I would never have my own business. <laughs> <laughs> and so going into academia, doing a PhD seems a long way from running a milk bar. How did you then sort of circle back to become a business um, founder and owner yourself? So I think I'd I'd always wanted to do research and I left, um, you know, I, certain, uh, I, I certainly um, never, yeah, as I said, I never wanted to have a small business. Um, I wanted to be a university academic um, lecturer and I, I did that. And I think I found myself about sort of 10 years into that career, realising that actually maybe it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be and thinking that there was probably that, that I could succeed, no worries, in um, in an academic career and work my way up, but I wasn't necessarily necessarily going to feel challenged or learn any new skills. And what were the main, for you, impediments to a satisfying career in, in the academic context? Well, a lot of the work that I'd been doing, a lot of the research work was um, to inform policies of policy development, so government policies. I'd done a lot of work for Defence and for the Department of Veterans Affairs. 
And I think the the moment at which I knew academia was no longer for me was when I'd, I'd gone for a, for a promotion and, you know, academic promotion rounds are, you know, a lot of things are taken into consideration, but um, one of them is how much money you you sort of bring in to the organisation. And my uh, the the kind of work I'd been doing was um, contract research, so I was getting contracts directly from government. And uh, the people on my interview panel told me that was low quality money, um, and that because it wasn't grant money. So at that moment, I remember thinking. Uh, I think I'm pretty sure my bank doesn't mind about my low quality money. So I might take that money and do it a different way. Um, And so part of what I think is fascinating about the business that you have now is that it seems to take the best of the academic world in terms of that rigour and discipline of research and then put it in a context where it can be more responsive to what your clients are looking for and, um, allow you to be a bit more flexible. Was that a conscious decision when you founded Rapid Context? Absolutely. So what I'd found also, I think, at being in the university or in a university structure is that we couldn't get contracts signed quickly enough. So I'd get asked to do a piece of work. It would take at least six months to have the contract signed between, you know, the government agency and the university because of, you know, both wanting to own the IP and a whole range of things. And then I realised that doing it myself, I could actually have a contract signed in, you know, 24 hours if I wanted to. Um, And also that I could just do work just far more quickly than at a university. So there were just, it just took away a whole lot of these barriers. Um, uh, so yeah, and, and I was able to also hire people and wasn't, there were just so many obstructions, I think, to doing really quickly or doing fast paced research um, to the detriment of academia because the the um, sort of reputation is that academics, you know, they're, they're great and you'll get robust research, but it'll take three years. So I really wanted to challenge that. And so what is the type of work that you're doing and who are you doing it for? So we do a lot of work for for government. So we've, we've um, over the last three or four years, done a lot of work for defence, for Veterans Affairs. We've done um, work with the AFL with uh, AFP. So lots of lots of male-dominated institutions, I'd say, is kind of where we're doing a lot of work. Lots of work on um, culture change, on um, policy development around um, diversity and inclusion. So doing lots of reviews of, of policies around sexual harassment. Yeah, lots of complex, complex organisational issues. Is And what's your particular area of specialisation for you personally as a a social scientist, I suppose. So I'm a sociologist. My background's actually doing a lot of women's health research back in my sort of more um, university days. Uh, and that's evolved to to look at, um, I suppose, organisational culture. So really looking at how um, problems manifest in the first place. So we don't tend to just go in and observe, you know, the issues, um, but really try to un- unpack how they started, so looking at lots of history of the organisation and that's what that's what I love doing. And when you first went out by yourself, I presume it was just you and your address book, uh, did you find it hard to uh, convince people to engage you to provide research given that you didn't have the brand name of a big university that you were sitting within? How did you go about finding clients at the beginning? That was, it was certainly scary and I did feel like, you know, leaving that university was like cutting an umbilical cord um, and it took a little while to feel confident that it was, you know, yeah, that I didn't have that, that name behind me. Um, but actually we've never, um, I've never really sought out 
work. So it's mostly come from referrals. So doing a really good report and then, um, yeah, that being referred to other people. And it just sort of grew quite organically, I think. And then when I realised that actually there was all this potential to do work um, and I just needed to hire more people to build the, you know, (laughs) capability to be able to do it, that's when it really took off. In terms of building the people, has it been hard to find people to attract to your organisation, as you say, to um, work on the volume of customer inquiry? Uh, No, it's quite the opposite. So we are overwhelmed with people interested in working for us. Like just get, I'm constantly getting CVs. And why is that, do you think? Um, I think because it's just a really appealing workplace for uh, women in particular uh, with young kids who have been academics or have been in the university sector who love doing research but cannot um, juggle the or, or just a, they get to that point in their career which is you know I mean research shows that's there's a huge drop off for women um, at a certain point in academic careers and that's where we are <laughs> ready and waiting and saying come to us. And so what's different about the environment that Rapid Context has created as a workplace to other workplaces who are as you say struggling with that attrition to get women through into the senior ranks what are you doing differently in a tangible sense? So I think it's it's a few things. It's, um, well, it's, you know, providing really great conditions. So, you know, paying well, um, providing unlimited paid leave for staff. So what does that mean, unlimited paid leave? So you could just say, look, I don't feel like coming to work for the next six months. I'll be, I'll, I'll be yeah. on the beach. You could. You can just you keep could. sending me my paycheck. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I know it seems crazy, but it's... Um, it's, it's actually not. So because we write policies, we sort of collaboratively as an organisation wrote our leave policy, uh, did lots of research on best practice and what works and what doesn't. And um, I suppose that, you know, one of the things I love about having a business, a small business, is being able to question the way things occur in other businesses and think, well, why do you have four weeks leave? You know, why do you have to have this many days sick leave without a sick certificate? Like really, what's the reasoning behind What's the rationale? So um, we did lots of research and... Really, there was nothing that said this is why four weeks works or doesn't work. Um, and we looked at lots of organisations that have unlimited leave and um, the barriers to them working, which was really in the fine detail. Um, and and also we just found that so, – so it's really – it's self-regulated. So very rarely do I have to say, oh, you've taken too much leave because it's it fosters such an, an environment of commitment to the organisation – that, um, and, you know, w- what's written into it is really a philosophy around, um, you know, if everyone took leave at once, there wouldn't really be a business. Um, you know, we have a shared leave calendar. People just make sure that everyone's not taking leave at once except, you know, over, you know, um, holiday period, Christmas periods. Um, and we, uh, yeah, and, and if we've got a huge deadline, there's just, you know, no one bails. Like everyone sort of feels so... <laughs> committed to it. Do they... you have the converse problem where people don't take enough leave? I know yeah. there's technology companies that also have that unlimited paid leave policy and they find that they actually have to start saying to people you haven't taken leave for such a long time, you need to, to take some. So I, I suppose I've been surprised that you do need to tell people um, that they feel um, 
but yeah, that there's they're not practiced almost at taking leave. Like there's sort of like, but what's the what's the catch? And there is no catch. So you know, certainly as the owner of the business, I lead by example. So you know, I I took two months off over Christmas and took my children backpacking in India just to and really did have a break. Um, and you know. It was fine, uh, and other people are as well. But we also have an, uh, an office space that is set up to accommodate children of all ages at any time. And so there's also no um, – I think that's also why it makes people – it makes it easier to not feel like you have to stay at home when your child's unwell or you've got something. It just it's, – it's very family-friendly. Going back to that question of what you're doing differently, so really good conditions, mm-hmm. a physical environment that sounds like it encourages people to integrate their home and work lives. What else are you doing that, that, as you say, creates an environment where there's just a deluge of people wanting to come and work for you? I think because it's really meaningful work. So we're actually – so all the research that we do is applied. So immediately, um, you know, when we're doing something, it feeds into a change in an organisation. And I think the, just the reward – of that is um, is is really powerful for for um, for our, my staff. Like it's just it, it you feel incredibly valued. Um, so it makes juggling kids and partners and you know everything else sort of worth it. Yeah, one of the things I like in that philosophy is that it's not just flexible work; it's meaningful work. And it sounds like you've really achieved that in terms of giving people an engagement with the work that they're doing and the work is the outcome in itself, not sort of getting it done and counting the minutes to when they can go home. Yeah, no, that's right. And the work we do is really important. We're really um, trusted with who we... So we usually work to... Well, we most often work to quite senior leaders in organisations and that trust, like we certainly don't take that for granted. It's really... um, uh, yeah, it, it's really important that we, prov- you know, so the work that we do, we know that it will make a difference. So we're really committed to getting it right. Um, and yeah, and there's just a real uh, sense of, of reward, I think. And one of the things, again, in that whole philosophy of rapid context is um, telling the hard truths. So not self-sanctioning when you're providing reports. And um, presumably the flip side, I mean, that must be satisfying, but the flip side is you must get a lot of criticism for the work um, and some people presumably judge your work without ever having actually absorbed all of it. How do you manage that? I think because we know that the the people who usually engage us to do the work want to know those hard truths and in fact I think our reputation now is that that is why people engage us Uh, and when they don't want to hear that it can actually be quite... um, awkward because that's, you know, we stand by what we're we're not sort of writing what people want to hear. Um, If they really, you know, if an organisation really wants to understand the issues and wants to move beyond them, then they really have to see them. Uh, So providing that insight that they sort of can't unsee is, um, yeah, is is really what what we focus on doing. But it also seems that it attracts attention from third parties. So freedom of information requests seem to be something that's quite common. Why is there interest from third parties in your work and, and how do you deal with those freedom of information requests? Is that you or is that the client that deals with them? Uh, it's, so it's the client that, that deals with them. And I think, yeah, there, there is a lot of interest. And I think it's, um, and it's, a, it's quite detrimental, I think, to the, that process. So when we're engaged to look at something quite sensitive and complex, it's because the client really wants to understand what the issue is. 
not helped if the, you know, those as they're trying to grapple with it and understand it, that's then splashed <laughs> across the newspapers. Um, so it's it's hard and I think there's times where I do want, I, I would love to talk about it and love to talk about, um, you know, how, how we're making a difference and, yeah, so to sort of sit back a bit and just watch those freedom of information requests, um, you know, come in and then get, get knocked back. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard, but uh, I think it's actually really important for organisations to have that space to be able to understand and deal with those problems. Are there any pieces of client work that are now complete and in the public domain that you can speak to and speak to the satisfaction that um, you've had in seeing some of the changes in the organisation that your research has been part of? Yeah, so we've there's there's a couple. So we did um, uh, some work last year for the Australian National University reviewing their sexual assault and sexual harassment policies and that's led to a whole range of change, uh, changing their um, their standard operating procedures, changing policies, making a huge difference to student groups. Uh, same with AFL. We did some work for the AFL reviewing their... So that's the Australian Football League. Yep. Yeah, sorry, yep. reviewing yep. their respect and responsibility policy and, and that's led to some really fantastic changes in terms of how they respond to incidents um, and how they support um, uh, you know, victims and alleged perpetrators of um, incidents. And one of the things that's interesting about your team is at this stage it's an all-women team. Has that been a conscious choice and... If so, how does that reconcile with, I think, commitment that many organisations have to diverse groups of people? Mm. So it's, it's been a conscious choice insofar as advertising all of our um, roles as uh, part-time. So that that sort of attracts, uh, you know, it's one of those structural structural barriers <laughs> that, you know, on the opposite side, for only advertising full-time work um, can be a structural barrier to women applying um, or, you know, mothers often. Um, this is the, the opposite. So we absolutely um, advertise every job as, as part-time or, or casual with the option of negotiating to full-time. Uh, and that is deliberate so that they, so that we do really cast a really wide net that will um, get as many women as possible with young, well, with young kids. So that is really who we're trying. That that work, the workplace has been um, built really from my perspective to to capture those women who may otherwise be uh, not in the workforce. So I certainly don't uh, feel apologetic about having an all all women. Um, or female workplace. And the, the other thing I suppose that it balances that is that we work with mostly male-dominated organisations. So it doesn't feel on a daily basis that we're this sort of, you know, just group of women sitting around a table. Um, we're most often embedded in organisations um, working sort of on lots of hyper-masculine um, issues. And as a business owner, sometimes big organisations struggle with the sort of conditions and workplace environment that you've designed with the argument being we'll compromise profit if we don't, if we embrace things like um, unlimited paid leave, it'll be disastrous for profit. As the business owner, how has it impacted you personally building a workplace like this, which in some people's minds is the ideal but too hard to achieve? Yeah, it's that's an interesting, a good question because I've thought about this and thought because it doesn't make sense actually. We've had we have unlimited leave. I have a large uh, number of staff, so you know almost twenty staff who uh, all of them work part time or flexibly, um, or less than full time, and in all different 
ways, and yet we've managed to make profit year after year after year. And how is that? And and that's been through, um, I think, just commitment, actually. So we haven't done, and we're not completely profit driven. That's not how we have marketed ourselves. It's not how we price ourselves. Um, and yeah, it is in, it is a really profitable business, and I've been able to increasingly invest that profit back into the business, get more staff, um, you know. So I'm not sure how, and I well, I think some of the so we've invested in, I think, smart ways to make sure that it works. So having someone who almost full time manages a flexible workforce that. Um, I don't think many organisations that are trying to uh, implement flexible working conditions also invest in the sort of HR mechanisms to support it. So that has, you know, almost saved a lot of money because you just know that people are, um, are connected, people are um, really productive, and when they're not or when something's going awry, we know straight away and can um, support in the right way. So you're not being dragged off your work to manage those issues you've got someone dedicated yep. to that so it's so yeah I think in organizations people often feel like oh it's such a pain dealing with xyz because it sucks time out of my day but presumably in your environment that's what you've got a dedicated person doing well that that's right and we've also invested a lot in um in that connectedness so lots of things to make all the people who are working remotely and flexibly feel a part of the organisation on a daily basis. So that's the other thing we do really, really well, I think. Um, As you say, the business has been really profitable. It seems like you made a really smooth transition from being an academic to being a successful business owner. Um, Have there been any setbacks or failures that have really taught you things? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, um, so perhaps seamless is an overstatement. So one thing being an academic, they certainly don't, uh, you don't get taught is how to do bookkeeping. So um, that was a real, a huge learning curve for me. Um, just understanding everything that's involved there, that sort of accounting side of it. And, um, you know, another great investment has just been in a really good bookkeeper or bookkeeping company. That was, yeah, that has helped me so much. Um, Yeah, and I've learned a lot from that. And how did you go about acquiring some of those business management skills? Was it just sort of trial and error or did you have a resource that you used? So certainly trial and error, Um, (laughs) lots of errors. Uh, and and I think then starting to talk to people. So I think probably over the last 12 to 18 months, just being a little bit more connected to other small businesses, that's been a real, that's been really important. And in terms of managing all you have to manage, so my sense is that you still do a lot of the research work yourself, plus you've got, as you say, a big team to lead and all of the business me- mechanics to manage, plus you've got three kids. How do you find a way to keep all of those things in balance and to stay sane and yep. stay healthy. <laughs> so an amazing partner, that helps. Um, and really, and I think I'm just very pragmatic about it, actually. So, of course, I have times of huge stress, uh, but I also take, you know, look after myself and um, certainly take self-care very and seriously. And so practically, how do you do that? How do I do it? I think by it's taking time off. So that's really, so as I said, I took a chunk of time off over Christmas, we that's a real, that's a huge priority for us is te- having family holidays. And you really unplugged, didn't look at emails or? Mm, yeah, look, it took a little while to unplug, but then I absolutely did. So that's, um, yeah, so th- that's probably a really practical way I do it. And then just every day, just having some time out. Um, yeah, without looking at emails. 
Um, and then you, you cited your partner. Was that something that your partner had to acclimatise to in terms of the change in dynamics or has that been a feature of your relationship ever since you started a family? So it's certainly a, a feature. So he is, um, yeah, I, I think it's, so without him, it would, it would be really difficult to have that person to brainstorm with and um, debrief with. And yeah, that's a, that is a really, I think, quite a critical part of my, the success of my business has been having that, um, having that, just that ongoing support. And in terms of resources, so people who look at you and think, I'd love to start a business in an area of interest to me and have the sort of passion and energy around it that you do, what are some of the resources that that you would recommend to others that have been really helpful for you? Mm, You know, I'm not not sure. I've I've really – I'm not sure I've found the perfect resource. Like it really has been – Learning by doing. Yeah, learning by doing. I've tried various, you know, connecting with women's networking groups and haven't necessarily found that. Perhaps, I don't know, I don't know why, but as as useful as I could, it's been really, I think, talking with other small businesses that's helped me the most, just as a sort of sense check around what's normal and then, yeah, having a really good bookkeeper who could sit down with me week in, week out and go through my profit loss statements. And the cash flow. Yeah. How much money is going to be in the bank? Yeah. Can we pay our salaries? Yeah, and making just having that knowledge to make informed decisions has been, yeah. And what about books? Are you a big reader? Are there favourite books that you have? I knew you'd ask this question. Look, again, it seems like I I should be and I'm reading constantly, but more I'm reading about critical thinking and questioning and, you know, um, th- that's more sort of where I'm, I'm focused rather than business-type books. It's more how to – more the doing and how to get the most out of the, the work that we do. Well, and it seems like that questioning is so fundamental to the way you operate that actually it's not – the focus is not necessarily on here are all the solutions but making sure that organisations are asking the right questions. Absolutely. That yeah. is pretty much – yeah. My day in day out, that 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 is what we're doing, and reflecting. So often, the a lot of it, the advice that we give to organisations is just that need to take time out and reflect on changes that that have occurred in in an organisation and and where it's heading, and that people just sort of outsource that critical thinking thinking often. And is there someone in your life that's a real hero to you or a mentor to you that has been very impactful on your life or business? As I said, my partner's been very uh, impactful, and I think just probably reflecting back on on my parents and their, um, you know, just their struggles in in small business and and watching them in you know I saw them, you know, in the in the 80s going bankrupt in a milk bar in a regional Victorian town, like really hard, um, really hard times, and I, I reflect on that and think they survived. You know, I didn't even feel it as a as a child in primary school at the time, um, and it and that has I I, can't, I do think about that a lot because I think well if that happened if that's the worst that can happen I'm surrounded by supportive people you know I'm a fairly smart competent chick it'd be fine life would be fine and then when you look forward to the future what are the things that you're really optimistic um, about so I'm really optimistic about growing the business um, and about empowering women. So creating a workplace that is incredibly empowering and for those women to be empowering other women as well. So that is what is yeah, exciting me. Well, congratulations on your success. It's brilliant to see a business person who's putting into practice 
A, the things they tell other organisations, but B, some of the things that we read about as uh, being ideal. It's wonderful to see the sort of experiment in action. So thanks so much. That's right. Thanks, Catherine. Every week I find a nugget of gold in each discussion, something I want to take away and implement in my own life. If you feel the same, I'd love to know how my guests touch your lives. You can leave a review on iTunes or get in touch on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks to the awesome Buffy Gorilla for production, Alicia Piper for her fantastic writing, and to Broke Free, who wrote and performed our theme music. See you next week.